0: Let's begin with a word of prayer. O Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, you are watching over your word and you will perform it. Amen. Amen. This evening we come to a passage of scripture that's full of bad news. But it's a certain kind of bad news. It's the kind of bad news that by definition is designed to lead us to good news. We get this kind of news all the time. Your phone starts beeping, vibrating out of nowhere. It's an amber alert. A child's been kidnapped and you're told... Be on the lookout for a black Chevrolet with such-and-such license plate. And this is bad news that hopefully leads to good news of rescue. Or as they do in my home country of Canada, uh, tobacco companies are legally required to put graphic images on their packaging. And these are serious health warnings. Pictures of uh, blackened lungs or a tongue with diseased boils on it. This is bad news that is intended to lead to the good news of a healthy life. Or take, for example, what happened last week during our morning worship service. The fire alarm went off. I know it was a false alarm, but when there's a real threat... An alarm is bad news that hopefully leads to the good news of safety. And this is exactly the kind of bad news that we're confronted with in these few verses from Second Peter. The Apostle Peter gives us a divine amber alert. He gives us a divine health warning. He gives us a divine fire alarm. Bad news that is designed to lead us to good news. And the bad news is the judgment of a holy God against sin. God has poured out his wrath against evildoers in the past, and God will pour out his wrath upon every unrepentant soul when he returns, says Peter. This is the bad news for every human heart that does not repent and in Jesus Christ but I want you to notice the flow of our passage this evening uh, this bad news of God's judgment for the unbeliever it's meant to lead us to the good news of Jesus Christ chapter one uh, sorry chapter two beginning at uh, verse one begins with condemning false teachers and then we have three examples of of God's judgment, right? We have God's judgment of angels. If if God judged angels, then if God judged the ancient world of Noah, then then if God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, and then logically we, we might expect Peter to say, then surely God will judge these false teachers that I've just talked about in verses one through three. But notice where the apostle Peter ends. Notice what we find In verse 9, Peter says, If God does not spare angels, the ancient world, Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, turns our attention from the wrath of God to the mercy of God from the judgment of God to the love of God. Peter wants us to see this, that if God has acted decisively in the past to judge the faithless, he will certainly act decisively in the present to deliver the faithful. You can think about our passage like a painting. In the background, you have... This blazing fire of God's holy indignation against the wicked. It's his just wrath in the the background. But then front and center of this painting, in the foreground, you have the beating heart of the gospel that God saves sinners, that God delivers the godly from trials or temptations. And when we think about the gospel like this, when we see the love of God against the backdrop of his just judgment, the shed blood of Jesus Christ becomes all the more precious to us because we begin to understand what it is that we've been saved from, what it is that we truly deserved, how much it cost our Lord You see, the salvation that we have is undeserved. It's unmerited. This is what grace means. We we don't deserve it. We don't earn it. And this grace of Jesus Christ is even offered to you today. Repent and believe. And God will not only spare you from his just wrath, But he will shower you with his mercy. As as the scriptures say, where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. So we have three examples of judgment in our text. And I want us to see what, what it meant to live in a world under judgment in the past. What did that mean? And then I want to see how this informs how we live in a world that is under judgment in the present. How we live in a world, to use the language of the Apostle Peter, that is stored up for fire, that is being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly in chapter three. And this is a great challenge that faces the church today. How, how do we live, how do we faithfully live out what it means to be in the world and not of it? It's the million dollar question. And my prayer for us this evening is that God's word would shed light on that very question. That, that the word of God would speak prophetically to us by the power of the spirit, that we would have greater wisdom as we seek to live out the love of Christ in a broken world without losing our souls to the love of the world. Now as we look at these examples of judgment from Peter, uh, we should remind ourselves of the context. What is it that the apostle is responding to? What is he framing for us well remember the context of Second Peter is that Christians are being deceived, they're being led astray by false shepherds, by false teachers, who deny, essentially, who deny that Jesus Christ is coming back. And the saints that Peter is writing to, they're, they're being ridiculed for their faith, they're being ridiculed for believing such a preposterous idea that Jesus of Nazareth, was raised from the dead, ascended, and he's returning. And really the dogma of the false teachers of Peter's day is really no different from uh, the dogma of the false teachers of our day, the spirit of our age, right? The dogma of, of our day is like that of 2 Peter. Eat, drink, and be merry. This is what the false teachers We're presenting to these churches. Live sensual lives. Give in to your sexual appetite. Feed your greedy heart. Why? Because there's no final judgment. And the Apostle Peter reminds these early Christians, and he reminds us, that no, there is final judgment that the fury of the lord is kindled against all unrighteousness our god is a consuming fire the scriptures say that it is a fearful fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god and his judgment of the unrepentant will be unfathomably terrifying on the last day revelation chapter 19 gives us a brief glimpse of the terror of this day. And uh, you can turn in your Bibles there to Revelation chapter 19. Here we see a prophetic image of what that day will be like, of what that day will be like for these false teachers, for those who deny that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Here Jesus is described as the rider on a white horse who is called Faithful and True, and it says that Jesus judges and makes war, that his eyes are like a flame of fire, that he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And a little further down, it says that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury. Of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is the picture of Jesus Christ that Peter wants the saints to see in, in this context. He wants us to see that that for the Christian we we cannot live in sin and we cannot continue to live in sin that grace may abound. We cannot heed the false prophets. Because Jesus really died, he really rose and he truly reigns forever and ever. And he will return triumphant to judge the living and the dead. And what proof do we have of this sure reality? What proof do we have? How do we know that God's judgment is actually imminent? Well, Peter tells us that because God has judged in the past History itself testifies to our Lord's return in these three examples. Now, the first example of judgment that Peter gives to us is somewhat mysterious. Theologians and scholars have wrestled with verse four and the parallel passage in the epistle of Jude. And there are some theories out there that suggest Peter is talking about Uh, angels who married the daughters of men in Genesis chapter six. Uh, But likely, it seems likely that Peter here is referring to the original fall of Satan and other fallen angels. And when verse four says that they have been cast into hell, it doesn't refer to the final place of judgment where the Bible says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, similarly to what we find in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, fallen angels, like like the devil, have been bound. Their power has been restrained. They have been defeated, but they still await the final judgment where they will face God without mediation. Now, very Briefly, what what does this teach us about living in the world today? Well, what we discover in verse four is the holiness of God. We discover that God is a holy God, and because He is perfectly holy, He cannot, by the very nature and essence of who He is, He cannot tolerate sin. God will never wink at our sin. He didn't wink at the sins of these fallen angels and he won't wink at our sin. He will not be mocked. And we see that the angels who mocked the glory of God received their due penalty. And you see this teaching again helps us to grasp the measure and the fullness of the grace of God even more. When we, when we understand the holiness of Of God. How can we even approach Him? How can we even approach a holy God who cannot tolerate sin when when our lives are so infected by sin in every way? And it is only through Christ's mediation, through His cleansing blood, that we can be made whole, that we can approach our holy God with confidence. But His cleansing blood, demands a response within us. We are now set apart. We are no longer of the world. We are simply pilgrims in it. Peter describes this in his first epistle in, uh, his, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says this, but you, speaking of the people of God, he says you, that's us as the, the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so, brothers and sisters, let me ask you this evening, are you living a distinct life? Are you living as one who has been made a member of this royal priesthood who has been called out of darkness and into the the blazing light of the glory of the radiance of God? Is your life marked by a deep understanding of the holiness of God, by a deep understanding of, of your own unholiness apart from Christ? And do you now grasp The call, then, to live in holiness because you are united to him. Well, then we come to the example of Noah in verse 5. And there's so much that we could excavate just from this one verse. I was really tempted to try to fit in a concise summary of covenant theology and infant baptism and why children are part of the promise, which... All these things are in this verse, by the way, but we don't have time for that this evening. If you have burning questions, feel free to talk to me after uh, the service. But where we need to laser in on is on Noah's example of living in a world under judgment. Verse five describes him, notice this phrase, describes him as a herald of righteousness now ordinarily in the Bible when we see the word herald it refers to preaching so in what way was Noah preaching in what way was he a preacher of righteousness? Well if we turn to Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 we see that he preached that he was a herald by way of his conduct we read in Genesis 6 that Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And that's just a way of saying that Noah experienced intimate communion with the triune Lord. But we also know that Noah was far from perfect. We later read in Genesis chapter nine of Noah's sin, of his drunkenness. And so we, we see this picture of Noah as Uh, what is really the gospel in the Christian life in a nutshell that we are both sinners and saints and so the message that Noah preached to the world through his conduct was this I am a sinner saved by grace I am a sinner saved by grace seeking to walk by the power of the spirit in humble obedience But Noah also pressed further. He warned of the judgment to come. He desired that all should repent, and so he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ in seed form at the time. He proclaimed the gospel in both word and in deed. But the people around him, the nations surrounding him, his friends, they jeered and they mocked Noah. They ridiculed him. They thought that he had lost his mind. And friends, our context today is quite similar to that of Noah's. Contemporary culture is hostile to the cross of Jesus Christ. A Christian writer just published a book called Life in the Negative World, And he offers a very simple evaluation that I think is very helpful, uh, a very simple framework for understanding where Christianity stands today in the public square. He argues in the last several decades that Christianity has experienced three different worlds, a positive world, a neutral world, and a negative world. The positive world represents when Christianity was perceived uh, as a net positive to society. Somewhere in the 1990s, he argues that we moved into a neutral world where Christianity was neither seen as good or bad as a whole, but simply one life religion among many to choose from. But then he argues that after uh, Obergefell, the Supreme Court decision of 2014, that Christianity has entered into what he terms a negative world, where our Christian faith, the belief system of the Bible, is is met with hostility in the public square. And I think you'll find this a helpful paradigm for us To think through where we are. We, We as Christians who are pilgrims and exiles here on earth, we do live in this negative world, much like the world of Noah. Your Christian faith today can cost you your job. Your beliefs can jeopardize your family relationships. They can strain interactions that you have with your neighbors. And so how Do we live in a world where our faith that is fundamental to us, that is so precious to us because of the great treasure we have in Christ, how do we we interact in a world where this faith is met with contempt or even hostility? Well, we look to the example of Noah. He's faced with the reality of God's judgment against uh, a wicked world And Noah responds in faith. He trusts in the Lord. He trusts in what God says and he he obeys. He trusts and obeys. And this is why Hebrews 11 says that Noah was saved by faith. Noah believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ even in seed form. And he obeyed God. He was faithful in obeying God's word to construct an ark. An ark that would preserve him and his household from a world under judgment. Now, in the Bible, I think I've said this before, in, in the Bible, the ark also functions as a metaphor for us, uh, as a metaphor of the church in the new covenant. Right? And, and we know that salvation is ordinarily only found within the church of Jesus Christ. Our, our confession is very clear about that. But what does this actually mean today? What, what does the church mean today? How is it even relevant? What is its place in a negative world? I think it's worth reminding us Of what is fundamental to the nature of the church. First and foremost, the church exists for the worship of the triune God. One theologian describes the church like a beating heart. You have the diastole, where the heart relaxes and fills the chambers with blood, and then you have the systole, where the heart Pumps blood from the chambers into the arteries. And so it is with the church. The saints of the Lord are called out from the world in the diastole and then propelled to the worship of God in the systole. And so our, our chief purpose as a church is to keep the main thing, the main thing, to worship and to glorify God. But the church is also more than that, of course, according to the scriptures. We are a family. We are the people of God. We are brothers and sisters who are united together by Christ. The church is centered upon our vertical relationship with God, but it has vast and far-reaching horizontal implications. Right? We are called to live out the Christian life together. We are called to confess our sins to one another, to forgive one another, to bear one another's burdens. And so we need to be a people who live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in this way, even in a negative world, even in a world that is openly hostile to the Christian faith. Noah trusted the Lord and committed to building the ark. He was a herald of righteousness. I encourage you to look at your own heart this evening and ask yourself this what is it that I am a herald of? Everyone is a herald of something. Will you be a herald of Jesus Christ to a dying world, to your brothers and sisters? in the church of Jesus Christ? Or will you be a herald of something else? And if we find ourselves in the world where we are reviled, where we are ridiculed for heralding our faith like Noah, we we can take comfort in knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ was ridiculed by his enemies. We can take comfort knowing that he was reviled. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Does this mean that we should go out with a martyr complex and actively seek out persecution? No. But in this life, We know that if we follow the Lord Jesus, we will face trials and tribulations. It's right there in verse nine. But the Lord will deliver us. And he uses the ark of safety, the New Testament ark, the New Covenant ark, the church as a means to establish us and to propel us out into the world to proclaim his glory. Well, the last example of judgment we have is Sodom and Gomorrah, and just as God rescued Noah, God rescues Lot, and the sin of Sodom, Gomorrah, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is familiar to most of us. It's well outlined in the Bible. They gave in to depraved and perverse forms of sexual immorality, uh, but what I want to focus on again, is the example of Lot in a world under judgment. Though he lived in the world, he was not of it. Look at the way that Peter describes uh, just the way that Lot's conscience was afflicted and grieved by by the sin of the world that he observed day in and day out. Verse 8 he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Beloved in Christ, are you distressed by sin like this? Is your conscience grieved when you Look at the injustice and the atrocities committed against our fellow image bearers in this world, is your conscience stirred, moved by compassion to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in a world that is perishing? Or, for some of us, have our consciences become seared, perhaps, even numb to the reality of sin that surrounds us. In verse eight, we see the heart of Christ in Lot. We see the heart of Christ that you and I must have in this kind of world, in a world that commits all kinds of evil, that commits all kinds of sensuality. The heart of Christ is one that is deeply troubled by sin, but but is compelled and committed to living a faithful life of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in both word and deed. Now a few more practical ways that we can think about being faithful in a faithless generation. Our text is clear that we are called to Personal holiness. Uh, We see this in both Noah and Lot, and yes, they both failed at times. Their their character fell short of the measure of God's law, but both of them trusted in Jesus Christ, and so they were they they received his righteousness. So we are called to personal holiness, but we are also called to commit ourselves to the life of of the church, like Noah committed himself to the construction of the ark. And we should also seek avenues to be engaged in our world at various levels. Uh, we, we, we see, for example, that Paul in Acts chapter 25, he uses his citizenship for the sake of the gospel. And so we as Christians who are living in this world and are not of it, We should engage our local communities in ways that we're able. We should engage our municipalities, uh, uh, seek to vote for just laws, seek to engage people with the good news of Jesus Christ to to defend the hope that we have within us. There's another foundational principle uh, from the Reformers that is really helpful when we think about living in this world and yet not being of it. And we find uh, this idea, this principle, all throughout the Reformed tradition, and it's captured by this simple phrase that grace restores nature. Grace restores nature. And that simply means that God's grace at work in our hearts can in part restore nature back to how it was intended to be. Of course, not all the way, but in part. And so so we see that the Spirit enables us to live out something of the cultural mandate of Genesis 1, to have dominion, to exercise dominion. Sin, of course, still affects our ability to live this out But in part, by the grace of the gospel renewing our hearts and minds, we can strive actually and in a measured way towards this goal. Sometimes we think that the Bible only starts at Genesis chapter 3, but I think part of recovering our understanding of what it means to live in the world and not be of it is to remember that the Bible starts at Genesis chapter 1. The cultural mandate that God set forth at the beginning of creation to fill the earth and to subdue it, That this cultural mandate is not made obsolete by the Great Commission. The Great Commission go and make disciples now makes the cultural mandate possible again in part. And this radically changes about how we think, about our daily callings, about our our daily vocations, about our daily tasks. Tim Keller describes this paradigm shift uh, as part of understanding how God redeems our daily callings. Okay, our, our, our menial tasks, things that seem unfruitful or, or that, that have no meaning suddenly become dignified because when the, the the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is at work in our hearts, we can do all things to the glory of him. We can build houses to the glory of God. We can make art to the glory of God. We can play instruments to the glory of God. We can... Be a banker to the glory of God. Be a mother to the glory of God. Be a son or a daughter, a software engineer, an architect, a preacher to the glory of God. The cross of Jesus Christ fundamentally changes your daily life to the point that that nothing in your life is meaningless. It is all done. The glory and praise of His great name, and pursuing excellence in your calling in this world, it is actually a way to bear witness to the excellencies of Christ. Martin Luther once put it this way: He said, "The Christian shoemaker does his duty not by stitching little crosses on the shoes that he makes." But he does his duty by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. But ultimately, we see that well in part, grace restores nature. Well in part, we we can live out something of the cultural mandate, live out something of God's creational design. We're still told that this world will pass away. Even though our daily callings can be redeemed, we still await our final redemption. And Peter reminds us that we live in a broken world where we experience daily trials. And verse nine reminds us again that God will surely rescue us from our trials. If God did not Spare the ancient world, if God did not spare the angels, if God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, how much more will He deliver the godly, His treasured possession, His beloved children, you and me? And there's something key here in verse 9. I, I want you to see Peter's uh, preposition usage is very precise and very significant. And it has a, has a real pastoral application for us. Peter doesn't say that God delivers us away from trials. That, that's a different but very common Greek preposition, away from. Peter doesn't say God delivers you away from trials. No, Peter uses a different Greek preposition which, which says God will deliver you out from or out of trials trials. And this is profound because it means that God will allow trials to come our way. He doesn't deliver us away from them, meaning that we will have no trials in this life. No, God sends trials our way as a means of growing our faith, as a means of sanctifying us, as a means of drawing us closer to himself so that we may more and more reflect an utter dependence upon him You see, the Christian faith is not an insurance policy against the trials of life. God meets us in the midst of trials, and he delivers us. As Acts 14, verse 22 says, we must enter the kingdom of heaven through many trials Well, brothers and sisters, God did not spare the ancient world and God will not spare the wicked on the final day of judgment. But God also did not spare his only son so that today, if you hear his voice, you will be saved. If you receive him by faith, you will be set free. The judgment of God that we deserved fell upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And now instead of judgment, we find mercy. Instead of wrath, we find love. And all he demands is our surrender. Surrender yourself to him. Die to yourself and live to Jesus Christ. Jesus offers you the greatest exchange of a lifetime. His perfect righteousness for your wretched sin. His ransom payment for your spiritual bankruptcy. His everlasting life for your death sentence. Rest in his finished work. In the trials of your life that you are experiencing at this very moment, rest in knowing that he is going to deliver you. When your friends forsake you, when your family abandons you, when your church disappoints you, when people let you down because they're sinners, when your children humiliate you, when your coworkers chastise you or ridicule you, when your neighbors mock you, rest in knowing that he will deliver you and he has given you his Holy Spirit to seal you for the day of redemption. Pray earnestly that the Lord would come quickly, that this world which is passing away would soon give way to the new heavens and the new earth, that Jesus will return and make all things new. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we ask that you would increase our faith. Increase our faith to know that the kingdom of God is at hand. That even though this world is destined for judgment, you have destined us in love for your glory. Lord, fill the earth with the knowledge of your glory as the waters cover the sea. May our lives be nothing more than just a preparation to meet you, our maker, to meet you well, to meet you in the the peace and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. These things we pray in his name, amen.